Hello, this is Kate Lathrop, the Program Director for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. You are listening to Breast Cancer Translated, the official podcast of SABCS. In this space, we hope to improve the care of breast cancer patients worldwide through education, especially focusing on bridging the gap between the lab and the clinic. Today, we have Professor Melissa Troster. She is a professor of epidemiology at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And she's also the co-leader of Cancer Epidemiology Program at the Lineberger Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's a pleasure. So today we're going to talk about the Carolina Breast Cancer Study. It's approaching three decades of work and for Those of us who aren't as familiar with the study, can you just give us an overview of of what this study is and and how it it came to be? The Carolina Breast Cancer Study started in 1993 um, in recognition of the fact that there were Black-White disparities in the state in terms of breast cancer outcomes. So um, there were 24 counties where we did a population-based study. Um, these investigators actually were before my time. Um, it was Beth Newman. She initiated this study and she recruited 2,000 women and um, 2,000 cases and 2,000 controls were recruited to the study with the main purpose of understanding some of the differences in why people were getting breast cancer, but also beginning to look at why the outcomes were so different. So just to put this into perspective, three decades ago, what was really known about what we might take for advantage now about the heterogeneity of breast cancer? I think today, particularly younger investigators have grown up with this idea that breast cancer is not just one disease. It, it has multiple different uh, types, and a lot of that's done not only by, by s- traditional staging, but now by more and more complex tumor molecular profiling. But when the Carolina Breast Cancer Study started, what did that landscape look like? Yeah, when the study started, I think um, we there were a lot of things that hadn't happened yet in clinical care. I think uh, ER status, uh, estrogen receptor status, was understood to be a marker that was really important for outcomes. Um, In the early years of the study, it began to be understood that the risk factor profiles for ER positive versus ER negative cancers were different. But I would say it wasn't until around 2000 when we really appreciated the complexity of the heterogeneity. So there were studies at that time, um, Charles Peru, uh, Chuck Peru, one of the investigators here at UNC, um, had done work looking at the heterogeneity from a genomic perspective. And that early work recapitulated that ER positive and ER negative were really showing up as two distinct diseases in the genomics. But it also discovered that there were other subtypes within ER negatives. Um, Now we think of triple negatives and HER2 positive um, ER negative cancers as the two main ER negative groups. And we also understand that ER positive represents two different kinds of diseases, um, a more aggressive subtype and then a less aggressive subtype. And there are a variety of ways in which we can you know, uh, encapsulate aggressiveness. Um, But I think in the early 90s, we didn't really have that 
depth of understanding. And we made some really strong progress in the first two decades of the study in terms of understanding why um, some breast cancers are associated with different profiles of risk factors. What we didn't um, have is really good information on treatment or survival outcome. And so it was in 2008 that it was decided we would initiate a new uh, study, a new phase of the study. This was phase three. Um, phase one was, you know, 2000 or 1993 to 1998, and then phase two was in the early 2000s. And phase two included um, ductal carcinoma in situ to learn more about the natural history of disease. And then in phase three, we decided to really focus on the survivorship experience. And I think um, in the early years, we knew there were disparities, but I think having three decades of really consistent data showing that with the same disease, we get different outcomes in different groups of people. So black women have about a 40% higher mortality rate after a breast cancer diagnosis than white women white women. And so we really wanted to um, make progress in terms of understanding that and in terms of identifying some interventions that could help move the dial. Um, you know, we've made quite a bit of progress in the biology of breast cancer in the past two decades. And we wanted to really translate that to a population to try to identify some levers. That was a really helpful overview. So I think it might be interesting to delve in a little bit more into those differences that you found in the molecular subtypes between African-American and white women. So can you elaborate a little bit more on, on what differences you were able to, to detect in your study population? Yeah, so um, in 2006, Lisa Carey at UNC, um, along with Bob Milliken, who was the PI who initiated the third phase of the study, uh, they published some results showing that Black women had higher rates of triple negative breast cancer. Um, it was, it was um, actually it's a higher prevalence. So among those that have been diagnosed with breast cancer, um, if you look among younger Black women, about 30% of their cancers were triple negative, whereas that number is much lower in white women and older women. Um, so it was closer to 15% in the other groups. And so initially we thought, well, this could be potentially the reason why we're seeing these disparities, that there's some different risk factors that lead to ER positive versus ER negative cancers. Maybe the differences of those risk factors in the population is leading to this shift and that accounts for these survival differences. But then subsequent research showed that even among the ER positive cancers that are supposed to have the best outcomes, we still see that 40% you know, higher risk for black women. And I think this led us to really think about, well, what what's going on besides the tumor biology. And so in the third phase of the study, the goal was to get a lot of depth on the access to care and how, um, how access to care differs for different groups of people, as well as simultaneously capturing the, um, 
the, the differences in the biology. So that's what you asked me about. You asked me about the differences in biology. So let me um, loop back to that because I just wanted to first contextualize that a little bit with, you know, why we sort of honed in on ER positive differences. And it was really because we saw, you know, that's the survival difference that we couldn't explain. Um, and so um, what we find is that in ER positive, HER2 negative women who have the best prognosis, we find that in that group, younger black women tend to have worse risk of recurrence genomic scores. They tend to be more likely to have higher grain tumors, and they tend to have more of what we call luminal B subtype, which is the more aggressive subtype of ER positive, HER2 negative cancers. So, um, you know, all of these things are pointing to, okay, well, there's some residual differences in the biology of the tumors. Um, and, and so that's part of the explanation. But then we also find that Black women are having, um, their care experiences are different than white women in, in North Carolina. So um, what we noticed in our study was that the time it takes to go from diagnosis to treatment initiation was longer for Black women than it was for white women. And we also noticed that there was a shift um, towards prolonged durations of treatment, that the treatment took longer to get through, which we look at that as evidence that there's some fragmentation of care. So you're, you're seeing both a, a disparity in, is it fair to say, luminal B type of profiling? So you know, in, in today's language, talking about basal-like tumors, which would be the triple negative ones, luminal A's, which are estrogen positive and, and HER2 negative, uh, was it the luminal B population that you were seeing a little bit higher in the African-American group? Is that is that a fair way to, to summarize yeah. it? We do shift more of those cancers in terms of the overall prevalence. So it's the relative frequency, it tends to be a little bit more frequent if you're a Black woman that you'll have this luminal B subtype. And then on top of that, a potential delay in diagnosis, delay in initiation of treatment. So both of those things compounding potentially to have us come to a result of an overall disparity in uh, mortality rates and risk of developing metastatic disease in this African-American population compared to white women in this group in, in North Carolina. Yeah, and I think maybe um, this would be a good moment for me to pause and talk about um, two major um, points of importance with re relation to this work. One is um, that we, through, through our work in the Carolina Breast Cancer Study, we interpret race as a social construct. And what we think about when we look at race is the multi-level contributors that really drive disparities. And so um, we have a self to society conceptual model as our framework, and that really helps us to think about the different levels. When we think about the biological or genetic pathways, and these are things like ER and HER2. We're also thinking about um, biological responses like immune response. But then there are like additional higher levels. One is lifestyle factors, um, education, income, health insurance is a really important one. 
um, the built environment. How long does it take for a woman to get from her home to the hospital where she has care? What is the density of the patient population that that hospital is serving? How long does it take to get scheduled? Um, how easy is it to get all of your multidisciplinary doctors in one place to make the decisions you need to make about care? Then we think about the neighborhood factors, how women are being supported as they go about their effort to get care. Do they have access to childcare? Is there um, family support? And then up to the institutional environments about the health system, healthcare policy, and then on the highest level, thinking about structural racism, segregation, and other policies that have affected uh, women's access to care. And all of these things together integrate to create the disparities. And so that's one of the things that we've really focused on in the study is trying to make sure that whenever we talk about the disparities, we don't we try not to talk about it as at just one level, like, okay, there are these differences in the genomics of these tumors, but that is in context of all these other layers that are happening simultaneously. Um, the reason that's really important is because if we don't do that, and this sort of gets to the second piece, if we don't do that, we can lead to sort of oversimplification of this statement. So we can say black women have more triple negative, but it's really important to recognize that that doesn't mean that because a black woman is diagnosed that she has a more aggressive cancer. Um, we see that there's tremendous heterogeneity in the population of black women. And we have black women who have very good prognosis tumors that are ER positive and HER2 negative. And we have black women who have ER positive HER2 negative tumors that are much more aggressive. And I think what that points to is really the need for a data-driven approach. So we, what we advocate on the, in light of our findings is that there should be wider access to genomic testing to really characterize, is this an aggressive ER positive for two negative cancer? Um, because if we don't do that, then we run the risk of making the disparities worse by assuming that a black woman has a more aggressive ER positive tumor. Putting that in the bigger context is, is very important. Um, I want to circle back on something, though, when you said increasing the amount of genomic profiling we do, which I, I think is something that's definitely happening over the last, you know, five, six years. But one thing that I think is, is more nebulous is this additional um, data about all those things you mentioned, you know, family support and access to care and whether you live in a rural environment or, you know, next to a, a national, you know, cancer institute hospital. Um, that to me seems like a very labor intensive and potentially difficult thing to collect all of that data in an accurate way. So how, how is the Carolina Breast Cancer Study layering on all of those, what I might summarize as potential social determinants of health, onto that genomic data that, you know, we can send off to a lab and have a report come back in a few weeks? It's relatively easy 
to to obtain that information, I think it can be very difficult to, you know, obtain some of this, um, you know, this other information. It's very sometimes very personal level, right? Does does a woman have access to transportation? Does she have childcare? Um, so, just walk me through a little bit how how the Caroline Breast Cancer Studies managed to do that over these years. Yeah. So so first off, we have amazing study participants. They have been so generous with their time. Um, We have followed these women, many of them for more than 12 years, and they've given us hours of their time answering questions, sharing samples, meeting with a nurse to have body measurements. Um, They've allowed us to do um, geographic mapping so we can see how far they are from the hospital. Um, They've shared with us their medical records so we can see um, comorbidities and other conditions that they're struggling with. So, you know, the participants have really given us a wealth of data. And then um, when we start our process of studying the data, we try to take this really layered approach. So I'll give an example, which is um, thinking about how we're gonna integrate biology and access and understanding recurrence for ER positive HER2 negative. So for that disease type, that's where we see a lot of the biggest disparities. And what we did is we looked at um, what the overall um, outcome rate was in black women in our population compared to white women. And what we found is that the crude five-year risk of recurrence, so this is the percent of women at five years where we just look at the absolute numbers and we don't adjust for any clinical characteristics. That number was um, 10.5% of black women recurred had recurred at five years, whereas only about 5.9 or 6% of white women had recurred. So we're seeing in our study population that crude, um, relative rate of recurrence is higher in Black women. And when we adjust for all the factors, we get that same 40% figure that we see across the nation. So then we think, okay, well, let's drill down. So now we have all of our data. Let's drill down and try to figure out which subgroups is this really driven by. So if we looked at just the women who had very low genomic risk, so low or medium risk of recurrence scores, um, these, there was no gap, both of the women, black and non-black in that subset of our study population had the same five-year risk of recurrence. So now we've adjusted that risk of recurrence for other factors and it's 7.6% for both groups. So both groups have the same outcome. And if you think about it, that's the group where if we treat or we don't treat, I mean, many of these women are not getting chemo, um, because they have the lower medium risk profile and it may be over-treating them to give them chemo. So that group has a very stable and similar pattern and we don't see the effect of healthcare differences in that group because healthcare isn't determining to the same degree whether they have a good outcome or a bad outcome. It's the tumor biology that's dominant. Um, in the other group where they have high risk of recurrence score or if we look at high grade women, that's where we really see the disparity. So this is the group that needs treatment the most, and that's where we see that Black women have an 18.9% five-year risk, whereas it's only 12.5 in white women. So that's, um, you know, the first step in drilling down is like, well, which is the group where we really see that outcome difference? 
And then the second layer is saying, okay, so if we see that difference and we think it's driven in part by that risk, high risk of recurrence score, then treatment should mitigate that. And we say, why is treatment not, you know, what, what are the treatment patterns that differ between these two groups? So then in our study, we looked just among high grade women and we looked at the ER positive HER2 negative group and we compared black and white women. And what we found is that black women were getting higher rates of chemotherapy, about a 10% higher frequency of getting chemotherapy. Um, but they were also having more delays in getting their treatment started. Um, they had a um, little bit lower rates of health insurance, and they had um, lower rates of endocrine therapy. So what we figured out from that analysis was that, you know, if we were going to go after something, that the intervention really needed to be to make sure that Black women were getting endocrine therapy when they needed it. Um, so I think, you know, what that shows is that it's kind of stepwise and it's iterative. So we take that wealth of data and we look at the um, outcome differences and then we try to layer on the different um, aspects until we come up with things that might be intervenable. Oh, that's a great example. So what do you what do you see happening in the next decade for the Carolina Breast Cancer Study? Yeah, so with the example that I just gave you, I think one of our challenges is it's very stepwise. So we're looking at the disparity and then we look at the treatment and we're, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to come up with more integrated assessments instead of looking at the biology in step one and then thinking about the treatment. What if we could, um, you know, use more sophisticated data science tools to try to find subgroups that had different outcomes instead of always being driven by our a priori hypotheses. So I think that um, what we really need is continued engagement with multidisciplinary teams. Um, and that includes, you know, folks from computer science who can help us get the most out of our data, biostatisticians who can make sure that our um, methods are the most appropriate for the kinds of variability that we see. We work with social epidemiologists, clinical experts, people who have expertise in genomics and pathology. It's really a large team-based approach. Uh, and I think increasingly, you know, we really recognize how important it is to have patient perspectives in that. So we work closely with patient advocates and we recognize the importance of communities. Um, communities in terms of giving us insights about the experiences and barriers that they have when approaching treatment. Um, and also that sort of responsibility that we have to report back our findings to the communities that have donated their data and who um, need actionable recommendations for how they can address these gaps in their communities. So I think the next phase of the study, and actually we are beginning to plan for uh, phase four of the study, which will begin recruiting patients in the next year. Um, I think the, the thing that we're really focused on is increasing the number of women that participated so that we can do more granular analysis and understand the human heterogeneity, the individual sort of unique characteristics that women bring to their 
diagnosis and that influence the way their treatment plays out. So we really want to get into understanding the heterogeneity within these groups much better. And we want to get much better at um, working closely with the communities to make sure that their needs are being met through the research that we're doing. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. I know I learned a lot and I'm really looking forward to you know seeing what your group accomplishes in the next decade. And I think the Caroline Breast Cancer Study is, you know, a real example of the translational work that can improve patient care and patients' uh, hopefully survival of their breast cancer. Final question for you. What advice do you have for any young upcoming investigators, maybe somebody who's interested in doing the type of work that you've been doing for the, for the last few decades? Yeah, I would say my number one advice is to get comfortable talking to people and to get comfortable being sort of in a position of discomfort where you're at the edge of your understanding, where you're learning new things, because I think that that's where we do the most exciting science is where, you know, all of us are bringing a piece of the puzzle and we're willing to work together and sort of wade through uh, disciplinary differences and some cultural differences between the way each of us think about a question and find that place in the middle. Um, I think our science is much better when we work as teams and across disciplines than if we sort of stay in our lane and keep working our one set of tools. So um, I always say that if you are getting things wrong or you are making mistakes, that means that you're doing the right work because that means we're learning and we're challenging our assumptions. And I think we get better at that all the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breast Cancer Translated, brought to you by the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, a collaboration of UT Health San Antonio and AACR.